Konnichiwa, my friends. Thanks for tuning in to Master Samurai Tech Radio. This is a podcast for appliance techs by appliance techs. Today is September 21st, 2015, and this is Episode 9. We're your hosts, Samurai Appliance Repairman. And Mrs. Samurai, and we operate MasterSamuraiTech.com and Appliantology.org. That's right. Be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or on iTunes or on Android, too. We are on Android. I forget exactly what it is, but there's a link over at the Master Samurai Tech blog for any of the podcast episodes with a link to Android, iTunes, uh, and YouTube, where you can subscribe to us there. They can go to mstradio.com. That's right. mstradio.com will get you right to the podcast site with all of the episodes there for your eternal enjoyment. All right, let's start off with some housekeeping news. Well, we're not going to be around next week, are we? We are not. We're going to be off in a, on a business trip, so there won't be an episode next week. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, you guys will just have to go re-listen to the old uh, episodes, and you know, there's a lot of uh, good stuff in there to suck up anyway. Oh, yeah. But tomorrow, um, I'm heading off to Burlington, Vermont for, I'll just be there overnight, for a decor hands-on training. I'll be heading up there with Sam, uh, my son. And we'll be staying there the night before because training will start bright and early at, in Burlington at uh, 8 a.m. And we'll have hands-on training on all their new IQ range set. IQ. And wow. So that'll be kind of exciting. So, and then Thursday, we're doing a webinar. Decor's giving a webinar on gas ignition theory. Let me tell you, if you guys ever have a chance to see any decor info on gas ignition theory, they, it is awesome. I mean, totally, they wrote the book on this stuff. I mean, this whole flame rectification, gas flame rectification of, of sparks and everything. It's, it's really fascinating stuff, and there's a, there's a lot going on there. And it gives you a lot of insight into uh, how the ignition systems work. And troubleshooting insight, I'm talking about, for being able to troubleshoot problems with um, gas cooktops, you know, continual sparking or not igniting the flame. I mean, lots of weird things that you see going on. So, all right. You've got some industry news for us today, right, Miss Samurai? I do. Uh, our first item today is that Sub-Zero Wolf is planning an expansion. Now, what's interesting is they had planned a site in Kentucky, but suddenly they've decided instead to do a $62 million expansion just south of Madison. Their headquarters in Madison, correct? Or in Wisconsin, anyway. I'm pretty sure it's Madison, yeah. Um, and so, you oh, know. Oh, but actually, the, the article's out of Fitchburg. I don't know what the relationship between Fitchburg and Madison uh, is. Maybe, maybe a suburb. I yeah. haven't looked it up. But anyhow, you know, why the change in heart? Well, yeah. apparently Wisconsin offered them about $5 million in various state and local incentives as part of the deal. And I'm sure this is, happens all the time with uh, commercial facilities is they go where the, uh, the best well, with the best bribe. is. It's, a, it's basically a bribe. I mean, so I'm, I'm looking at this. And so Wisconsin's giving them $5 million in state and local incentives, a uh, million dollars in building roads and uh, state tax credits, reading job right. creation and wage requirements. And then apparently what really sealed the deal was a new labor contract with the local employees. So I guess the labor unions got in on the act and... Right, which means unions. So if they... And they were looking at going to Kentucky uh, because they wouldn't have had a union shop there, which uh, helps improve uh, profitability on it. That's why you're seeing a lot of um, manufacturing 
when it does happen in the U.S., a lot of it's going on down south, North Carolina, Georgia, um, and and because you've got you know right to work like right to work laws down there, so you don't have to have a labor union shop. Which I know I'm not saying anything necessarily about unions, but the reality is that having a union shop does make it less profitable. And so the state of Wisconsin is having to come up with all these extra bribes to, and I call them bribes because that's kind of really what they are, to keep the Sub-Zero plant expansion there in Wisconsin and save those jobs. But over the long term, those bribes are going to pale in comparison to the additional overhead of having a union shop. So I don't know how viable this will be you know, 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road. But maybe, as uh, Keene said, by then we're all dead. Oh, who knows? Yeah. That's the cheery way to look <laughs> at it. Um, so this this 400,000-square-foot expansion will more than double their current footprint there in Wisconsin and churn out upscale dishwashers. We mentioned that in a previous episode that Sub-Zero is yeah. going to get into the dishwasher They're game. actually making them themselves. It's interesting. As well as ranges. So I assume those would be wolf ranges. Um, And speaking of higher-end appliances, that segues nicely into my second item here, which is that according to Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, um, manufacturers have been refocusing on higher-profit upscale major appliances. So you mean they're getting away from the disposable stuff? Well, I'm not sure, because... I'll just give you, you know, a few tidbits to give here. So they, they talk about in the last 10 years that the, <clears throat> excuse me, the average cost of a major appliance in the U.S. has climbed from 485 to $604. Um, hmm. But we all know we're seeing more of these so-called disposable appliances out there. So I think this is just maybe the averages are deceiving because they... Would you have to look at the median to get a better picture of it? I would think so, because I think what we're all seeing is that there's... There are more higher-end models out there and more lower-end, so it's sort of averaging out. What's well, that bifurcation that we've been right, talking about right. in several episodes? So you, you see that things like the Whirlpool Vertical Modular Washer, uh, truly a disposable machine, because any almost any repair you do on it is going to quickly get into the replacement cost, and that's always been the big enemy in appliance repair, is the replacement cost. And on some of these lower-end machines, you cannot afford to uh, do service calls on them profitably. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus doing it on a high-end job. And we're going to talk more about that uh, a little later in the show. We've got a particular uh, specific item that we're going to, uh, an application we're going to bring in and talk about this on. Right. So appliance sales have slid in the last 10 years about 24%. And that's completely because of the economy. So, um, okay, just to recap. <clears throat> so the appliance sales have slid over the past 10 years. But over that same period the average cost has risen. Right. Interesting. Um, Now, the reason sales have gone down is because there are fewer households being formed. There's more, you know, young people finishing college and having to live at home, for example. They got that degree in basket weaving and $80,000 in debt, and they're sitting on the couch at mom and daddy's house. Right. Or they're, they're renting an apartment versus buying a house. All those kinds of things have led to this. Um, And so... What this is doing is giving manufacturers incentive to focus on where they can make more profit because the lower end appliances are have lower profit margins. And where is that? Where do they make more profit? Well, ultra high end devices. Right. That's what they're saying right here. And that ties in with the Sub-Zero. Oh, um, yeah. They saw enough of an increased market for ultra high end appliance 
that it was worth for them spending $62 million to make a plant to expand production on those appliances. I think that's interesting. Yep. So instead of selling more appliances, they're trying to sell higher profit margin appliances. Um, now what does that mean for servicers? Exactly. Um, a lot of people might think, well, there's fewer appliances out there or there, you know, there's going to be fewer jobs for us. But our contention that you guys keep hearing is that there is, this, this is actually good news for the tech who is trained. And positions himself in the market properly. So if, you, if you're focusing your business on fixing bottom feeder type appliances, like, and I use the example of the Whirlpool Vertical Modular Washer, it's a bottom feeder washer. If, you're, if that's where you're focusing your business, you're going you're gonna to be going out of business. You're not going to be a very profitable com uh, company. You're not going to ex be experiencing a lot of growth. Uh, where you want to be positioning yourself is where the market is going, where the industry is going. And you have to constantly be reevaluating the industry because it's always changing. You can't just take a snapshot five years ago or three years and go, okay, this, that's fine. That's how I'm going to do it from, you know, going forward. You've got to be reevaluating it based on news and trends and things that are coming out, like what we're sharing with you right now with you know, Sub-Zero expanding. That's significant. You've got a, a company, a profitable company like Sub-Zero, They've got enough marketing intel that they figured, hey, this is a good investment for us to spend $62 million. And then we talked about in the last episode, GE was spending $100 million tooling up to make uh, a new line of top load washers. Right. Six to $800 ones, not the three to $400 ones. Right. Not the ultra high end. But th th these guys are seeing a market. And so if you, you want to position yourself uh, where that market is now you got kind of a little bit of a mixed message in the sub-zero and ge they're seeing two different things there but sub-zero they're not gonna they're never going to um, make stuff for the lower end of the market their their whole niche is ultra high end where ge tends to try to run the gamut has a much broader spectrum of product mm -hmm. offerings right and you have an anecdote mm -hmm. about uh, samsung warranty nightmare for a particular woman that illustrates how there are a lot of working techs out there right now that are going to be out of a job if they don't do something. Right. So you want to position, not only do you want to position your business to work on these high-end things, you want to have the skill and ability to do them. There's a, a recent case out in um, Walnut Creek, California. A woman had a Samsung refrigerator, $2,200 refrigerator, right? And for four months, couldn't get it fixed. It was it was down. She's living out of coolers for four months, describing this whole thing, having tech after tech come in and they couldn't fix it. Okay, and I say tech in quotes. Mm -hmm. Everything can be diagnosed. Everything can be troubleshot. You mean to tell me these parts changing monkeys come out there? They couldn't even figure out whether it was a sealed system issue. Surely you can at least tell that. And they're probably just throwing board after board at it. They didn't say specifically in the article what the problem was, but. What I have found is that, you know, all of these uh, refrigerators, modern computer-controlled refrigerators, like Samsung, like LG, all of them now, they're using things like sensors, thermistors, same thing, to report temperature data back to the central computer board. Well, a lot of these guys, if you don't understand that technology and how this is actually working and you've got a single board computer controlling all of the functions in the refrigerator, and you don't even understand that basic schema, then all these guys are doing is just throwing boards at it. And that's probably what these, what these parts-changing monkeys were doing. And, and they, oh, still didn't fix it. And it was probably just a bad thermistor or maybe a pinched wire or something like that. They, mm -hmm. No telling what it was, but things can always be troubleshot. You can always figure out what's going on. It ended up where these guys were like, oh, 
we can't figure out what's going on. Maybe Samsung will give you a new one, and which is which is ultimately what uh, what happened. Uh, I just don't know why these guys couldn't figure it out. But I think it illustrates if you don't have the technical skills, if you're not up to date on the new technology being used and, and able to actually troubleshoot, troubleshooting is not, uh, oh, I've seen this problem before, replace this part. That's pattern recognition. Troubleshooting is measuring inputs and outputs and following a cause and effect chain of thought until you identify the problem. Mm-hmm to its logical conclusion. It's, it's, a, it's actually formulating a strategy and following that chain of thought and in a sustained and focused way until you identify the problem. So, and a lot of guys, a lot of techs, even if they do this, they don't necessarily understand that that's what troubleshooting is. That's, that is the troubleshooting process. And there are a number of various techniques that you can then go on, tactics that you can implement. And we teach a lot of these in the fundamentals course. Yep. Um, that whole troubleshooting mental skill that mindset of how to apply what you know about the technology and the schematic to being able to figure out what's wrong with the appliance so this is what where the industry is going now it's getting more high tech the whole industry is moving towards uh, where appliance techs are not the old uh, the old butt cracks where they can get by and, and barely literate those days are quickly going and mm-hmm. you've got to up your game the whole industry is on this precipice of transformation right now. We're kind of becoming computer techs because that's what appliances are today. They're computers that do stuff besides take input from keyboards, although they do that through the touchpad, or put stuff on a screen or write stuff to a disk. They're computers that do things like run a compressor or run a fan. And so you've got to understand how these computer environments work, digital communications, these serial uh, communications, data pulses, how these boards talk to each other. And this is something we teach in the advanced schematic analysis and troubleshooting course. You've got to understand the technology that you're dealing with and because it is changing, rapidly changing landscape, it presents a tremendous opportunity for guys who are skilled. Even though there may be numerically a total pool of fewer appliances, there's going to be more higher-end stuff, more complicated stuff, which means more interesting stuff to mm-hmm. work on and more profitable stuff to work on. And so for the trained tech who knows how to troubleshoot, huge opportunity. I think it's exciting. It, it is. It, it makes for a more interesting business, a more profitable business, a more professional uh, yeah, I just think it's it's good news all around for the tech who's willing to put in the little extra work to stay on top of all this. We are becoming less of a trade. The appliance repair, the whole appliance repair service industry is transitioning from being a trade in the classical sense of it into more of a profession uh, because you're gonna there's, things are rapidly changing and you've you've got to work on your own time to keep up with things through training through reading. Um, and li- listening to podcasts, of course, and so and since we've gotten fairly, yeah, you know, starting to shift towards technical topics, why don't we segue into tech talk? That's a great idea, and this is a good time to do that. I wanted to um, uh, shift gears here. I got a good question from Drew Micah Bay. Uh, sent me a question on Vox uh, Voxer about. I had ta- we had talked um, a couple episodes ago about this idea of voltage sag versus voltage drop. Mm-hmm. And Drew uh, sent me a question on Voxer asking about this situation he came across working on a sharp combo microwave oven where it seemed to him like it was a case of the manufacturer accounting for 
voltage sag because he, he went to the back of he's working on this um, combo microwave oven went to the back of it and he saw this uh, switchable plate one side was 240 and if you switch it to another position it went to 208 and so he was wondering if that was the manufacturer's way of accounting for voltage sag and short answer is no um, the short answer is uh, this is the manufacturer's way of accounting for two different uh, types of power supply systems that are in common use today, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But just to recap, voltage sag is a problem with the voltage supply source, and it can result from a problem inside the building, wiring, outlet, whatever. It can result from a problem on the transformer out on the pole. Uh, you know, ba basically the power company's issue, but and it, is a, it is an unpredictable, random, transient problem. Generally, it's transient unless there's something that's really wrong with the wiring in the house where it causes a uh, sort of a permanent voltage sag until that problem is corrected. But it's where the, the supply voltage, say it's supposed to be 120 volts at the wall or 240 volts at the wall, and you, you actually measure something far below that, maybe like 202 volts, 208 volts, something like that. Ah, I said 208 volts. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Well, um, if you're working at a, uh, in a uh, home or a building that has a standard 120-volt, 240-volt power supply system, and you're measuring 208 volts, that is a problem. But what if you're in a commercial building where they have 208 volts as their standard voltage? Well, then everything's hunky-dory. And let's just explain the difference between these two types of commonly encountered power supply systems. One is the three-wire, 240, 120 volts, single-phase, split-phase power supply system. This is like in almost every home in North America. That's your standard 120 wall outlet, and you got your 240 outlets for your electric dryer, your electric range. We're all familiar with that. The, the other one, and it's also very common, is and you, you may or may not have run into it though if you've not worked in many commercial establishments is a four wire 208 slash 120 volts three phase system and this is the most common configuration that you'll find in commercial uh, establishments like restaurants or something i was going to say is that pretty common in restaurants yes it's the know. most common so oh, okay. if you do any kind of commercial work restaurant work you'll find this even if you don't you need to be aware of it so that you understand that if i see a, something like 208 um, am i working on a 208 system or a, a three phase? if you're in a home probably not although some very rural places do and there's a way you can tell that by looking at the um circuit breaker box because, and we're going to get to that. We're going to, uh, first let me talk a little bit about the 240-120 split phase system, give you some fun facts to know and tell on that. It's also called the Edison system. It's also called a split phase or center tapped neutral system because that's how it, how it works. The secondary on the power transformer out on the pole has a center tap right in the middle of that secondary winding. And so what that creates then is line one, line two, and neutral. Line one is on one end of that transformer. Line two is the other end of that transformer. I'm talking about the winding, the secondary winding. And so that's line one and line two on either end of those, that output of that transformer uh, secondary. But if you go to the neutral, to that center tap, Line one to neutral will be only 120 because it's center tapping, splitting that secondary winding. Line two to neutral is still only going to be 120. But those two L, 
uh, one to L to L1 to neutral and L2 to neutral, they're going to be 180 degrees out of phase with each other. Right. So it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of, and I've got a video actually, where I'm going to, I'm going to link it in the description of this um, podcast episode that explains all of this. So you'll see it on a graph, but right. It's a little visual. Uh, it is. So it, it is helpful to see that. much easier to understand with, with a graph and everything. And there's a video that, that I put together and explains all of this using graphs and tracing it on through. So that's the, 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 the traditional household 240-120 split phase system, and where you have L1, L2, and neutral. Now, 208-120 three-phase system. Okay, this is, as I mentioned, this is the most common commercial building electric service in North America. They call this the 120-208-Y connection. And why do they call it Y? W-Y-E? They'll spell it out like that because the transformer secondary, and again, it's three phase. So you've got not just one secondary winding, you've got three secondary windings because there are three phases and they're connected electrically in the shape of a Y. And so you've got um, three coils that are connected in the shape of a Y and at the center of that Y where all three come together, that's your neutral tap. And so what you've got now is L1, L2, L3, and neutral in a 208-123 phase system. And that's how you can tell if you're dealing with that. If you ever have a question about that, go down to the circuit breaker box. Do you have L1, L2, and L3 coming in? Versus if you go to a regular household power supply, you're just going to see L1 and L2 in the circuit mm-hmm. breaker box. So the... Um, You'll see, again, you'll see this in like restaurants and maybe large HVAC uh, situations. But in a 208-120, you're going to have, so from winding to winding, if you measure across two of the wind, any two windings, you're going to measure 208 volts. If you measure from the end of any of the windings to that center tap where they all three meet, you're going to, me- that's your 120. And so, and again, you got three phases, and you can get three phases to work with for running motors or whatever. So, right. an example of this. Um, sorry, did you have something? No, it's okay. Just, yeah. So, an example. Just agreeing enthusiastically <laughs> with all this great information. So, an example of that. If you want a, a simple example of a, a product that is commonly sold, like at Amazon, you can go look up like a 208-240 hand dryer, and you'll pull up a product that shows it's a you know electric hand dryer like you see in the at the in any bathroom you press the button and it blows hot air it's rated for 208 to 240 because you can switch it and so you it depending on the power supply you're working so whether you've got it in a regular household power supply a regular split phase 120 240 system or if you want to run it in a commercial building like at a rest stop uh, rest area or something or at a restaurant um, then you can switch it over to run on 208, so it's still going to put out the same amount of watts, 1,500 watts in this particular case. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're just a little switch, just like what Drew was talking about on the Sharp microwave combo oven, where you got that switch in the back. It's so that you can maintain the same amount of wat- wattage, work output, heating output, when that voltage input power supply changes. That's the reason for that. Okay, so it's it's more flexible. It can be used in right. a variety of settings. Like in our town, it's an old New England town, so a lot of commercial uh, businesses are in former residential homes yep. that have been converted as Main Street became more and more commercial. So yeah, yeah. 
And so they, it just makes it uh, makes these uh, products, it's easy for them to implement and relatively inexpensive. So mm -hmm. it just makes them more versatile with broader application in, in other situations. So rather than having to buy a whole new hand dryer or dishwasher or whatever it is, for a 240-volt installation, if you're moving it from a 208, or vice versa, you just switch it. Right. Um, and I just wanted to say, if this seems a little bit academic to any of you listening, um, it's always good to have a little bit deeper knowledge in areas than you may have to use most of the time. I mean, most of the time, you know, you might be working in a residential setting, you say, ah, you know, I don't need to know this, but you always want to have a greater depth of knowledge. You want to be aware of it so that when you see things that look kind of odd, you can put it in context. The more perspective you have, the broader your perspective, the easier it is for you to make sense of, because you're going to see all kind of weird things in the field. You guys know this, you, 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 but you want to be able to make sense of it. And mm -hmm. so in this case, when Drew saw this uh, 208, 240 switching back, um, and when you guys see something like this, because you'll see it on other appliances, then you'll know what this is for. This is that this appliance is set up to work on either 120-240 split-phase, single-phase, regular uh, household power supply systems, or 120-208 three-phase, right. commercial power supply systems. Well, it's great that Drew asked you that question. Yeah. So you could bring this out. Good job, Drew. And so I want to encourage um, anybody else out there, if you've got any questions like that, please don't hesitate to send them to me, because it lets me know... Uh, kind of what you guys are struggling with, what you would like to like me to look up and research and explain or whatever I can do to uh, what you'd like me to talk about. So just uh, give me a shout either on Voxer or uh, you can leave a comment on iTunes or on the podcast episode page over at uh, the Master Samurai Tech blog and mm -hmm. uh, or you know lots of different places you find we're on social we're easy media to too. Find. Oh yeah, we're all over. We're, we're where you want to be. So. All right, well, let's take a quick break, and we will be right back most scratchy. You are listening to Master Samurai Tech Radio. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. All right, welcome back to Master Samurai Tech Radio. You know, we get a lot of really good conversations and discussions that are go that go on in the tech only forums at appliantology mm -hmm. among the brethren yes i mean it's not just technical stuff but it's, it can start out as technical stuff and then turn into like a business related discussion it's a very good sharing of information that goes on how different guys are handling different situations and why right well kind of like you said in a previous podcast that um the soft skills are actually harder in a lot of ways because there's so many nuances and, and yeah. things. And the soft skills is not just the human interaction, that's a huge part of it, but it's also the decision, strategic decisions on how you uh, run your business, how you position yourself in the market. And we've talked about this a lot. But one topic in particular that came up that I thought was uh, particularly noteworthy and worth sharing here mm -hmm. was uh, Patricio brought up a topic on, he was working on a problem with a stove in a mobile home that had non-standard wiring. So it wasn't, it wasn't uh, up the code. And it was just a really weird issue. And he got lots of good advice from people saying, look, if it's got a wiring issue in a mobile home, 
you know, first of all, stay away from if there's a if there's a non-code wiring issue, it needs to be brought up to code. Regardless of the home. Right, regardless of the home. The uh, And then the other issue and, and the whole um, topic discussion sort of uh, dovetailed off that was uh, work, this, this whole idea of working in things like mobile homes uh, in the first place. Right. Is now, that strategically a good decision? Exactly. And the thing that triggered us to really think closely about this happened years ago. You had a situation, uh, if you wanted to describe that quickly. Yeah, and it was a mobile home, and I, and I went in there. And what I found was just in moving the refrigerator out to get to the back of it, it was such cheap flooring. It was like almost rubberized, thin rubberized stuff that it tore a section of it. Just in rolling the refrigerator out, normal rolling, urethane rollers, right? Um, so, and, it, and it ended up tearing part of the flooring. Um, and so it, it was. It was kind of an issue, and I, of course, I made it right with her and everything. But um, the um, the right. The, and looking into that, what we found out is that it is not uncommon in mobile homes for them to have much lighter weight construction, right. and these types of things aren't uncommon. That just in the normal course of trying to do your repair, you're much more likely to cause damage. Right, and so it creates a liability issue. And then, so okay, you've got this liability issue from unintended damage of working in a mobile home because it because of it's a mobile home and so then you have to ask yourself well you know sometimes it's worth taking on extra liability for a job but but you know you have to be rewarded there's that whole risk reward thing Mm -hmm. so you're taking on that additional risk what's the reward well in a mobile home situation i would posit that the reward is minimal or negative it right. is, you're not going to be, generally, you're not going to be dealing with higher end appliances. And, you know, we've talked about this over and over again, including the earlier part of the show, that you want to be positioning yourself to work on higher end appliances. And generally in a mobile home, you're going to be working on lower end appliances um, or, you know, maybe a lot of times they buy them secondhand, that kind of thing. So, right. Um, and I just wanted to, to say, we're, this isn't just mobile homes, but uh, lower end apartment buildings, um, and other other areas that you'll get to know in your region that tend to be on the lower end of things. And I, if I could just, as an aside, I want to make sure this doesn't sound like we're being elitist at all. No, this is a, about running a business, and a business is run for profit. And so you have to, in my opinion, you absolutely have to be selective about your service area because, mm-hmm. like we have learned in our service area, there are areas in whole towns that we know from experience, lots of bad experience, that it's just not worth running service calls out there. They're they're generally almost universally lower end appliances and no matter what the repair is, they complain about the price. Right, Uh, and this has changed over time. We've been working in this region for 20 years and I'd say for a period of time, we didn't have these issues. But what's happened, um, one is that... The bifurcation in the industry. Exactly. There's more disposable appliances. Craigslist has happened. Ah. We have so many people who call from these areas we used to serve, and we've just found that you know we weren't serving them anymore. We weren't giving them what they needed anymore. Right. Well, they, if they're getting their appliances off Craigslist, so they, say, they, say they bought a refrigerator for 175 bucks off Craigslist, and it's not getting cold. It didn't get cold from the time they plugged it in, and they want me to come out and fix it. Mm-hmm. Well, pretty much any repair I do on a refrigerator is going to start at two hundred dollars. I mean, unless it's something like really simple, like a burnt wire or something mm-hmm. that right. I happen to find. But uh, so you know, and I, I'll tell them that a lot of times it's we don't outright refuse to go out. We'll just be very, very upfront with them and tell them, look, you're probably looking at a repair between two and three hundred dollars. And a lot of times that uh, 
right. that freaks them out. So in a sense, we're still helping these people yeah. with information. Um, you know, we, we can give them information on what the likely cost of the repair is based on what they're reporting. And we also tell them about Appliantology, where they can go get help for free, register as a grasshopper, and, and ask questions. Exactly. And what we're finding is that we've learned how to communicate with them so that they actually do know that they're being helped. They're avoiding paying us our service call fee just to find out that right. it's going to cost more than they're willing to spend on these appliances. Right. So in those situations, we just like to be as upfront as possible and as transparent as we can, while at the same time being selective and discriminating about where we run service. And I absolutely discriminate based on socioeconomic factors. Why not? It's, it's a business. And, and uh, we actually have to run it as a business, which means it has to be run profitably. So if I go and I do a call on one of these low-end uh, appliances, and you know, the big limiter is the cost of replacement. And so either they're not going to do the repair and just pay the service call fee, or it's gonna be some repair fee that I'll have to you know, really knock down on versus I could have done in that same time slot, right? I've only got so much time in a day, I could have done a high-end repair and it would have been a profitable repair. This is the decision. And so if you're running a business, you, you wanted to run it as a business and you want to run it as profitably as you can. That means you're providing excellent service and you're being profitably compensated for your excellent service. But it does not mean, and a lot of guys confuse this, they run their business as a charity or a partial charity. And they, oh, okay, I'll just give it to you this time. Well, right. you know, I, I like to run my business profitably so I can do things like give money to charity. So if you, want to, if you want to do it as a charity, fine, make your money and then give your money to charity like Habitat for Humanity or something like that. But I, the other thing I think that confuses a lot of guys with this whole issue of, of pricing and, and uh, selecting their service area is they will actually run their business as a hobby. And what I mean by that... Unknowingly. Yes, unknowingly. So what I mean by that is... Uh, they're running, they're doing their service, and they're pricing their services without really knowing what their fixed and variable costs are. They don't know what their actual costs of doing business are. So it, for every job I do, I know what my fixed cost is, I know what my variable cost is, and I know what my net is. So uh, a lot of guys don't do this. And so they just go out, and they, the way they set up their pricing structure is, well, Joe Blow down the street is charging X, so I'll charge a little bit less so I'll be more competitive. And, and then you're following Joe Blow right into bankruptcy. They can get away with this in a lot of cases when their hobby is subsidized by their wife's uh, part-time or full-time income. Particularly That's, if she has benefits. Right, yeah. exactly. And so, uh, very, great point. So a lot of times, this is exactly a lot of the situation I see. A guy's wife is working full-time. She's the one with the benefits, health care uh, and all that stuff. He's not actually having to pay for those as overhead expenses in his business like any business would. And so his prices are unrealistic and they are actually subsidized by his wife's income. That's a hobby. That's mm -hmm. not a business. Right. So, so you need to look at your business honestly. And right. And ask, you, is it really a business? Are you really supporting yourself and your family? And... You, you can certainly do, uh, I mean, you mentioned before, if you're profitable, that frees up some of some money that you can give to charity. You can certainly choose to do a little bit of pro bono work if you want, but make that choice deliberately right. from the base of having a profitable business um, and be able to give help on the phone to people who are in areas that you might not serve, but you're not serving them because you have something against them personally. This has nothing to do with who they are as people or anything. It is strictly a business decision. Right. You're not, 
it's not serving their interests, not in the, the way the field is today, the, right. the industry and the availability of used and disposable appliances. You could refer them to uh, free DIY resources like Appliantology. Grasshoppers still get help for free there, and they can register for free and post questions. So that's an, sort of a, an out for you if, if you have kind of if you're kind of uncomfortable about doing that. I want to address one other point too uh, on all of this. I'm kind of surprised a number of guys I talk to, including self-employed guys who, who are, you know, got their own tr uh, shop going, got their own company going, doing, doing appliance repair, and they've got a weird feeling about profit. Mm -hmm. This word profit is, is it, you know, we, our, our government-run school systems, which is infused with Marxism, right. uh, is, has tainted this whole word like, oh, profit, that means you're making money at somebody else's expense. That means you're cheating them. And there's this, there's this sort of taint to that word that should not exist there. Listen, if you're offering a good service and you're upfront with your pricing and you go out there and you're quoting somebody uh, for the repair and they want you to do it, Nobody's holding a gun to their head, right? You're, you're, it's a voluntary exchange. They value, they are saying they value your service more than they value the money in their pocket. And you at the same time are saying, I value the money in your pocket more than I value my service that I'm offering to you. And so a voluntary and mutual exchange takes place. Guys, that's business. Mm -hmm. Business is, it's beautiful in the sense that it's totally voluntary that way. There is no force going on here. So profit is not a dirty word. It is what you need in order to get through the lean times, to grow your business, in order to compensate you for the headache of running a business and for things like staying on top of the trade like a true professional. Right. It's the signal that you're doing something right. Absolutely. Good point. If you're not profitable, then you're doing something wrong and you're not mm. going to be staying in business for long, which isn't going to do anyone in your area service. Well, and a lot of guys too, they, they don't feel good about charging uh, a reasonable fee for what they do because they don't know much. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about you guys necessarily listening, but you know who I'm talking about. I mean, there are a lot of guys out there who really are not skilled technicians at all. And this is most of the techs in the trade today, sad to say, but that's what MasterSamuraiTech.com is here to remedy. There are a lot of guys who really don't know much. They don't know how to read schematics, don't know how to troubleshoot, don't understand motors. Um, and so you shouldn't charge much. If that's your situation, you should not be charging much because you don't know much. But if you do have all of these skills, it's a big investment of time to get these skills. It's a huge personal investment of your energy to acquire and master these skills. You should be charging more because you are bringing all of those skills to bear on their problem. And that's what people are hiring you for. Right. And it can be tough because you definitely get pushback from an occasional customer. I would say regardless of their socioeconomic status, we've gotten pushback from wealthy people occasionally yeah, as well as middle class although working people. I gotta say most of the complaints you're, you're gonna get whining and complaining uh, from all across throughout the socioeconomic strata <laughs> and and that that's sort of a, a even distribution what I tend to see most of the time is is not so much pushback on the pricing from from the wealthier customers it tends to be more complaining about how soon you could get out or when's the part going to be be available? Or the convenience of the scheduling a service call? That's exactly the right type of complaint. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. When somebody calls up and they're asking how soon rather than how much, Bubba, I'm there. That's my customer. Now, versus somebody who's just complaining about the price because they bought it off Craigslist, and so anything they pay for the repair is just going to be a losing proposition. 
that tends to be more in the disposable income strata of that bifurcated appliance market that, uh, that right. we were talking about. Right. So, yeah, if somebody's going to complain to me a lot, and, and you're going to get complaints, like I said, across the socioeconomic strata, I want it, and if I've got to sit there and listen to it, I want it to be from a customer who has compensated me well or is going <laughs> to compensate me well for that repair. Right, right. <laughs> so. And, I mean, still, the, the percentage of complainers is always small. If you run, If you run a good, honest, mm. you know, upfront business, you're good at communicating with your customers, it's going to hurt occasionally when they are complaining, but they, you just got to roll with the punches. They tend to loom large. I mean, you, really, it, it's like 1% to 5% or probably like 1%, really. I Maybe. Mean, it, it's yeah. very infrequent that, that we get complainers. Um, and then, like I say, even a lot of times it's just complaining about how soon to get out there and scheduling and that kind of thing. So that's why you've got to have confidence in your business. Know that you're doing the right thing. Confidence in your skills. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's why we say learn more earn more. If you know this stuff, that in itself, knowing this stuff, gives you a lot of confidence. I think a lot of guys get out on these newer computer-controlled appliances today, don't know the first thing what's going on. Mm -hmm. They guess at parts, and they're really unsure of themselves. And they, well, I just won't charge a whole lot because I don't really don't know what I'm doing. Well, you shouldn't charge a whole lot in that case. You shouldn't charge anything, I would say. I would argue in that case if you don't really know what you're doing. You should right. learn what you're doing before you go out on the job. Yep. So, all right. Well, so I wonder if this is going to be a little controversial for some people who just <laughs> listen to this. I mean, it, you know, you said the word discrimination, uh, which is a hot button these days. But of course, you have to remember there's something like discriminating taste. I mean, that's the, right. And there, that's the that context word, I'm using it in. Exactly. That word can be used in different ways. You could also say discerning. Yes. And that's that's the context that it's it's used in, and so yeah, you you've got to make business decisions. And look, we all make our business decisions based on uh, our particular business, our situation. Um, so maybe you're in a situation where all you have around you is you know trailer parks or low income areas. You you gotta you gotta take those lemons and make them into lemonade, and that's a unique challenge in your situation. Right, you'll learn how to discern. I'll say that instead of discriminate. Yeah. Among that, because again, we we've had great customers who are a little bit on the lower end of the the socioeconomic spectrum, but they mm -hmm. had good old solid appliances. They understood that they were better off keeping those going than being tempted by the you know whirlpool right. vertical modular washer replacement. They so. tended to, they were they tended to be in that those particular cases mm -hmm. uh, more informed consumers. They had done a lot of reading and they they knew all of the the pitfalls that were coming out with the newer appliances unless they were willing to spend a lot for upper end stuff right and so you'll learn with experience how to how to discern those people just by asking a few questions and listening to what they say right exactly so all right so you guys got any questions or feedback or pushback or anything <laughs> on that? that's all right we can take it yeah let us know and uh, there's lots of discussions like this by the way that go on over to Plantology and the tech only forum uh, forums there's there's mul several of them multiple uh, tech only forums that only uh, tech members professional plantologists and other types of tech uh, you know, real technician members have access to. And a lot of good information exchange going on there. And uh, this is just kind of a, this discussion just kicked off of one particular topic that was posted there recently. So hope it was um, interesting and uh, helpful to you in some way, or at least give you a little insight into what our thinking is. And you can take out of it what you like and what's useful and discard the rest.
That's right. All right. That's all we can do. All right. So just to remind you again, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you leave a review on iTunes, it helps to promote the site, helps to let others know about the site. So, And you can let people know at your parts house, whatever. Uh, we also post the uh, podcast episodes on our YouTube channel. So um, really appreciate you tuning in with us today and listening. And encourage your comments and suggestions. Let us know. Give us any feedback. And why don't you remind them of our web addresses? MasterSamuraiTech.com. That's our training site. That's where we offer all of our training. And then Appliantology.org, which you were just talking about. And that's our tech support site. So, all right, guys. Uh, thanks again for listening. And um, won't be, again, just a reminder, won't be on next week. We'll be missing you. We will. And um, so until then, sayonara. <laughs> <laughs>